hopefully, did all of you guys get a prayer card this morning? You know, some of you guys, uh, I think they were giving them out as you were coming in. You know, these are almost like collector's cards. You, many of you guys have been in the church. Y'all been supporting it so long ago that I had no gray hair and uh, we had no children on our first prayer card. <laughs> and uh, we've been fruitful and multiplied, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, I think we're the first people to ever get a Speed the Light Dish Network. <laughs> They said, we don't want you to have any more kids. Here's a dish network. Put it on your house. Um, <laughs> some of you got that. I'm, I, I appreciate it. Thanks. Um, <laughs> and if my wife was here right now, and she does send her greetings, uh, we had a, a, a miscommunication. Uh, and my oldest son is in an event, and he shows up today at 11 o'clock, and she has to be there to pick him up. And uh, I can't handle the two small kids so that meant I got to bring one of my children and uh, with me today, Will. He's in the children's church. But uh, God's blessed us so much. And this church has been one of the churches that's been with us every step of the way. Um, first time we came, we had no kids. And, you know, we're just starting out and, and uh, starting out on this endeavor that God's called us to. And it's been amazing. But what is incredible is every time, we wa- every time I watch that video, it, it reminds me of that first time. I ever went down, uh, I remember, for those of you guys that don't know me, like I met my wife, she's an MK, and she did grow up in Ecuador, she, she arrived there when she was eight years old, and, uh, and, and I went to work in Ecuador for a missionary, as a missionary associate, and what happened is I never knew that he had a daughter, and his daughter was in the States, in Louisville, Kentucky, going to university, and when she finished university, I had been living in Ecuador for about a year and a half. And she, she called her dad. She said, Dad, I want to come home just for a couple of months. And, and realistically, you know, when she showed up in Ecuador, she had a house and she had a job and she had a boyfriend. Um, and then, well, hold on. And then she got to look at this. <laughs> she sold the house, quit the job, dumped the guy, swept her off her feet. And that's my story. And I'm sticking to it. <laughs> and and, and uh, so we got married in Ecuador. And as soon as we got married, we took off. And, you know, God spoke to my wife. It was incredible because we were living in the city at the time. And God already spoken to me about moving to the jungle. And I was scared to death that she wouldn't want to move. And God ended up speaking to her about moving to the jungle. And we moved. And one of the very first trips we took, we'd only been married for a few months. And we got on a bus. And we rode that bus for 12 hours. And the bus had 45 seats, and there were 95 people in the bus. The bus never stopped for 12 hours to go to the bathroom. But there was freedom in the bus because people were going to the bathroom in the floor of the bus. I think the person who wrote the term Rolling Hills was in that same bus because by the time we got to the port, that's what was happening. You know, and, we, and the door opened, and it was like we came up for air for the first time, you know. We came out of the boat, and we walked down the river, and we got into a canoe with 35 people and two hogs. Um, I told my wife I was going to take her on a cruise if she'd marry me. <laughs> and we got in that canoe, and uh, guess where our seats were? They were right behind the hogs. <clears throat> so being the guy I am, I, I strategically maneuvered around not to be looking at the, the backside of a hog for the next six hours. We turned around, and we put our backs there. And so we're looking at the entire canoe. I mean, the canoe is almost as long as single wide, almost as long as this entire aisle right here, dugout canoe. And I remember sitting on that canoe and just looking at the whole thing. And and the Indians think I'm the biggest, hairiest man God ever created. And my wife's the only blind, so it was like the circus was on the canoe. And we're sitting there, and everybody in the entire canoe is not even blinking. My wife and I are looking around, and every time we turn around, it's like the entire canoe is staring a hole right through us. Like, what is going on? The canoe taxied over to the side of the, of the riverbank and put us out on a pig trail and said, that's the, that's, the, that's the trail to the village. And we started hiking up that trail, just my wife and I. And, and there was only one person that we knew in that village, a man who had become a Christian in one of our other churches and had told us and asked us, please come to my village and preach the gospel. And so we started hiking into that village. And as we're hiking in, we heard the little kids, Apaches, white men, white men are coming. And, you know, I had a question when I first got there for the chief. And they'd never had an outsider in this village. Never in a million years had they had anyone that was not from that village come into that village. 
And so when I walked in, we were the first white people, these, these kids or, or any of the adults had ever seen besides the one guy who had been a Christian. And so when we came in, I asked the, I asked the chief, I said, look, I have a very, very important question. It's actually a burning question. Where's the bathroom? <laughs> and after 12 hours in a bus and, you know, six hours, in, it was a burning question. You know, I said, I have got to go to the bathroom. He said, oh, there's no bathrooms. Just go wherever you have to go. I learned a very important lesson that day in missions. And if you guys feel called to missions, a very important thing to remember. If you are the first white person to ever go to a village, all the kids in the village want to know if you're white all over. <laughs> you know how surprised they were when they found out I'm actually whiter? <laughs> there are parts of this Alabama body that have never seen sunshine. <laughs> and uh, you know what was so crazy is during that trip, that's 15 years ago, during that trip, not, I hope, I know if you come to this church very long, you get taught, you're taught to read your word, amen? You're supposed to read the word of God every day of your life, and if you don't, you're, you're, you're remiss, because there are people who, would, who are laying down their life to be able to read the word of God right now. And we have people who's got 15, 20 Bibles on their shelves, and they don't even open them up. You know, and God's going to judge us for those things, when we stand before him and, 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 but you know, one thing I learned a long time ago is God didn't just tell us to read the word. He told us to meditate on the word. If you go all the way back to the Hebrew, when you talk about meditation, the bet, you know, the, you know, the example, the, the best correlation in the Hebrew for meditation is a dog chewing on its bone. You know what a dog, I mean, any of you guys got a dog, you know, the dog grabs a bone, it, it buries it, and it pulls it back up, and it, dig, it chews on it again, and it buries it again, and it pulls it back out, and it keeps chewing and keeps going through that process until it gets all of the marrow out of that bone. And that's what meditation is. That's when, I don't know if you've ever done that, but throughout my life, God's spoken to my heart through a verse, and I've chewed on that verse for months and, and sometimes years, and I've chewed on it, and I pull it back out and keep chewing on it and keep chewing on it. And then finally, one day, bam, you understand what God meant. And for me on that trip 15 years ago, Luke 10, 2 became so real. Luke 10, 2, where Jesus said, the harvest is great and the laborers are few, that you would pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers. And it became so clear because in that moment, 15 years ago, the math lined up. I love math. I love numbers. Because two plus two is always four. And people are not that way at all. We never do what we're supposed to do. Amen? <laughs> if you don't believe that, just work with people for a day. <laughs> and, and, and the mathematical equation in Luke 10:2 became so real to me. Because on that trip 15 years ago, I was coming off of the Kutuku Mountains, the last speed bump in the Amazon jungle and I was there at daybreak 5 a.m. in the morning and the eastern sun was coming across the entire South American continent at one time and all you could see as far as the eye could strain to see was a sea of green. It's the Amazon basin. And at 5 a.m. in the morning as the eastern sun is breaking over the Amazon, you see these incredibly impressive columns of smoke start appearing over the jungle. And that day I realized that every one of those pillars of smoke represented another village that had never heard the name of Jesus, even one time. And see, at that moment, I realized just how big the harvest was. At that moment, for the first time, even though I had gone to Bible school, even though I had had my credentials as a minister in the Assemblies of God, it finally became real to me that the people who do not agree with us, those who oppose us, those who have a different worldview from us, those who even want to do us harm, they are not our enemies, they're our harvest. And it became so real that everyone that's not in line with us and do not believe the way we believe, they're not our enemies. They are our harvest. 
And see, you take the second part of that. And Jesus said there are few laborers. The laborers are few. See, when you really chew on that after a while, it reminds you that Jesus was not talking to a culture that sits in padded pews and has carpeted floors and controlled temperatures and cars and asphalt, Wi-Fi and cell phones. He was talking to people who did not have eight tracks. They didn't have folding chairs. They did not have lace-up shoes. They didn't have pants, underwear, or (laughs) dial-up. And 2,000 years ago, without any of the modern conveniences, there were still few laborers. When I asked myself that question, Jesus, why are there few laborers? I got another piece of marrow out of that verse because the reason there's so few laborers 2,000 years ago and the reason there's so few laborers today is because you know where the harvest is? The harvest, 2,000 years ago, is the same place the harvest was, the harvest is today. You know where the harvest is? The harvest is one step out of our comfort zone. And see, the mathematical equation for those who are hanging on is this situation. There is a great harvest, and when we add a great harvest to few laborers, my friends, the equation, the total of that equation is an eternal crisis because it means that Christians, that us today as believers, are accepting something that is unacceptable to Jesus Christ. I don't care where you live And I don't care which continent it's on. I don't care what your color is. I don't care what your background is. If you have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, and his seating at the right hand of the Father and the expectation of his second coming, it is unacceptable. And there are more people today dying and going to hell in the United States, and on foreign soil that have never heard the name of Jesus than ever in the history of man. And friends, that's unacceptable. That's unacceptable. See, what's so crazy is uh, Jesus didn't end there because he, said, he told us to do something. He said, Pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers. Now, I want want you to help me out here. I want you to say a word with me. I want you to say the word ekbalo. Say that word, ekbalo. Everybody say it. Make sure the person beside you says it, ekbalo. Now, you can all leave a quarter on the table on the way out. That's your Greek lesson for today. (laughs) You know, the the, the word is a verb, and the only other time that Jesus uses the verb ekbalo It's when he told his disciples, he said, I'm going to give you power to ekbalo demons. Now, I got a question for you. How many of you guys think a demon leaves under its own desire, its own will? How many of you guys think, how many of you guys think a demon leaves because it wants to leave? How many of you guys believe that a demon leaves? Well, let's put it in our terms. How many of you guys feel that a demon leaves because it's called to leave? Uh oh. <laughs> so, realistically, what Jesus was saying 2,000 years ago, and here's the mathematical equation when we see a great harvest and we see few labors, that we as Christians would pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would push us out of our comfort zone so that we are part of the answer and not part of the problem. And see what's so incredible that we would see the crisis and we would pray that whatever it cost us, that God would push us out. And you know what's so crazy? Is I've been a Christian now more than 20 years, and I've learned something in over 20 years. You can either be comfortable or you can be obedient, but you can't be both. And if you make the decision to obey Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, eventually he will make you uncomfortable. Eventually, he's going to push you into a situation that you never intended to be in. And we have to decide as believers, do we want to be comfortable or do we want to be obedient? 
And what's so crazy about this whole process is, yes, when we pray that prayer. So 15 years ago, I started praying a prayer. God, you know how, you know how simple the prayer was? I kind of I changed it around. I didn't want to just say, God, just, just push me out. I started praying this prayer. God, don't allow me to accept what is unacceptable to you. If I see something on a daily basis that is unacceptable to Jesus Christ, then I make the decision to trust in him. That he's going to give me the wherewithal to do something about it. How many of you trust in Jesus? And you know what's so crazy? Is I learned something 15 years ago. When we start praying what Jesus told us to pray, guess what Jesus does? He answers. <laughs> wow. I would probably bet there's people here that have been praying something for 20 years and God's never answered it. Do yourself a favor. Start praying what Jesus told you to pray. You want to get 100% answers to all of your prayers? Pray what Jesus told us to pray. And I started praying this prayer, and all of a sudden, it happened. All of a sudden, it took place, and I learned something else. You know what else I found out? I found out there's two other things that are right outside of our comfort zone. The other two things that are right outside of our comfort zone is Jesus. You know what I've learned is I've learned that when we pray that Jesus would push us out of our comfort zone, what we're praying is that Jesus would pull into himself. And I've been a believer now. I live in the jungle 17 years. And one thing I've learned is Jesus always abides one step out of my comfort zone. You know, the third thing that I found, I found the harvest. It's outside of my comfort zone. I found a greater intimacy with Jesus because, you know, when you pray that Jesus would make you uncomfortable, guess what? You learn that you start praying not because you should pray, but because you have to pray. Oh, that changes your prayer life. See, you don't look for three minutes on your way to work or on your way to school. You don't put in a tape and go through a meditation. You pull off on the side of the road. You put on your flashers and you throw yourself on your hood and you say, Jesus, if you don't, then I can't. <laughs> the third thing we've learned is the other thing that's one step out of our comfort zone are miracles. Most amazing miracles I've ever seen. We've seen amazing miracles. Our people are the, are the miracles that have taken place one step out of our comfort zone. See, I was praying that prayer 15 years ago. Started praying that prayer and Jesus started answering. We're, we're planting churches. We're good church planters. It's something we do. Believe it or not, we're, I'm comfortable with planting churches. People ask me, they say, how do you do it? I don't know. I remember one time they flew me to Springfield. I said, hey, we want you to tell us your theory and how you do it. And I got up in front of everyone, 500 missionaries, and I said, hey, well, we pray. And we do what God tells us to do. <laughs> no, but we want you to tell us something more. You know, how do you, how, what's all of your process and what's this and that? So, well, we pray. We do what God tells us to do. Believe it or not, they never invited us back. They don't want to hear those things. <laughs> they wanted something more complicated. I said, I'm sorry, I don't have anything else. We were praying that prayer in 2006. We get a knock on our gate, and by 2006, we were rolling in church planning. We were rolling, rolling, rolling. We had dozens of campuses, churches planted out throughout the jungle. And our Bible school was running on all cylinders. In 2006, a little girl showed up at our doorstep, and she had all of her belongings in a little bundle with a bandana. Her mom showed up, and she's standing there in front of my house at the end of a grasslanding strip, and she said, um, Pastor, I'm here today to give you my daughter because her dad told me not to bring her home because we can't afford to keep her anymore. And I looked at her, and I said, uh, well, how old is your daughter? And she said, I don't know. She's 8, 9, 10. I don't remember. What year she was born. You know, I don't care how you slice it, that's unacceptable to Jesus. 
It's unacceptable when kids are suffering. You hear that? Doesn't matter what color they are, where they come from. We started finding out that, 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 that we took this little girl in, and, and after we took her in, after a couple of weeks, we found out in the market, a few blocks from our house, the parents would take the kids and sell them in the market because they couldn't afford to keep them. And so uh, we took that little girl in, and we put a little bed up. When we put that bed up, when we put that bed up, <laughs> um, she had never had a bed in her whole life. She'd go downstairs at night. And she would hide food under her bed every night. Because she'd never been in a house that had food. And, and I mean, she'd have chicken and I mean every, anything you can imagine under her bed every night. I'd go up there when she went to sleep and I'd pull all the plates out and take them downstairs. And, uh, you know, she, matter of fact, she'd never had a house with walls. She'd never had a house with a floor in it. She'd never had running water or electricity. And she lived with us. I want you to remember this. You know, I'm the biggest, hairiest man God ever created. My wife's only blind. So it's kind of like her parents dropped her at the circus. <laughs> so she wouldn't talk to us at all for weeks. I mean, it was literally weeks. She's like up against the wall and walking around like this. Like, I don't know what's going on. And after a couple of weeks, I was like, hey, sweetie, let's talk. You know, finally she said, okay. She sat down after a couple months, two or three months. And I said, hey, what do you want to do when you grow up? And she looked at me. She said, you know, I want to be a missionary just like you. But I don't want to be a missionary here. I want to be a missionary in China. And, and, and you know, and, and so here we are with this little girl. And then, and then all of a sudden, you know, I, I go off on a, on, a, on a trip and my wife calls me. Uh, we'd had cell phones. It was 2006, late 2006. This little girl lived with us a couple months. She calls me and says, hey, uh, <clears throat> got good news. I said, what, what's the good news? She said, uh, well, um, we got two more girls. <laughs> I said, really? You know, I said, well, you know, that, that's funny because we don't have any money. And uh, <laughs> we really don't know what we're doing. We don't have any kind of approvals. We don't know. We don't do. And she goes, but we can't accept what is unacceptable to Jesus. I said, what do we have? She said, we got $150. That's all we got. We started praying about it. We're talking on the phone. I said, you know, there's a lady in the church. There's a single mom in the church. She didn't have anywhere to live. And I said, you know, call her and see if she'll move in to a rented place and we'll put these girls there with her too. We'll pay the rent. Pay her rent. So I made that phone call. And, and I told Leah, and we, we did all that stuff that day. We had $150. We went and paid the deposit on a house that day. And she sent those three girls and in that, in that one single mom to that house. And... The very next day, on a Wednesday, I got a phone call, and a businessman said, uh, he said, I'm a businessman. You preached in my church five years ago, and God told me this morning to call you and send you a check for so many thousands of dollars. Now, God didn't tell him four years before, or three years before, or a year before, or a month before, or a week before, not even 24 hours before, but after we had taken a step. God responded, and that man wrote a check that underwrote our girls' home for the first two years. And what was so crazy is we rented this little house, and my wife went in and started stacking those girls in like cordwood. And she came back to me after about a year, and she said, baby, we got to buy land. And I said, hey, that's great. <laughs> got no money. <laughs> We took everything. She said, we got to do something. So there's more girls than we can shake a stick at. We got to do this. And we went and, and I said, hey, you know, we don't have, we don't know how we're going to do this. We don't know how this is going to happen. We took everything we had and we had $1,000. That's all we had. I'm talking about personally in our checking account. We took money out of our checking account. We took money out of our, our what we had in our missions budget. And we had $1,000. And I, and I told you, I said, I got $1,000. That's all we got. We can't buy a piece of land for $1,000 in the middle of the jungle. And she went and she said, I found a piece of land. And God told me that's the piece of land we're going to buy. Now, I'm going to tell you something. What I've learned with my wife, and I want you guys to hear this, that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, and heaven hath no ally like a woman inspired. You better just tell her, okay. <laughs> 
You know, and, and, and my wife came to me. She said, God told me we're going to buy that piece of land. You know, go talk to the guy about buying it. And I said, okay. And I went and I met the guy and I talked to him about this piece of land. You couldn't even walk five feet in the land, thick, dense jungle, totally grown over. You could not see 10 feet into the piece of land. And when I walked onto it, I, I, I went up and I talked to the guy and he said, listen, I'll sell it. I'll sell it and I'll sell it for $50,000. It was a big piece of land. I said, ah, I got $1,000. So I've been in Ecuador long enough. I went back, and what I did is I sent, you know, being, knowing what I know about Ecuador, I sent one of my Ecuadorians, not the biggest, hairiest man that God ever created. So one of my Ecuadorians went, and he came back, and he says, Pastor, they'll sell it for $25,000. That's great. No, I'm from Alabama. I'm from a small town called Sneed, Alabama. Now, being from Alabama, what I did is I went and found his cousin. <laughs> You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you want to get something done, you go find their cousin. Go get your cousin to talk to him. And I sent his cousin to talk to him, and he came back, and he says, Pastor, he'll sell it for $15,000. 50000 25000 15000 I had $1,000. I went to the guy, and I said, listen, if you would be so kind to take this $1,000, and, and, and give me 30 days, we will pay off the balance in 30 days. I believe God's going to give it to us. I said, if we don't, you can keep the money. You can sell the land to somebody else. This is a done deal. So I looked at my wife and I said, hey, don't worry about a thing. I'm going to go pray and fast. You guys believe in prayer and fasting? Well, I went and prayed and fasted. And I said, I'm going to go pray and fast for 14 days. So 14 days I prayed and fasted. And after 14 days, I had prayed in the lump sum of zero dollars and zero cents. <laughs> and no kidding, I call it my Jenny Craig fast. <laughs> all that happened is I lost about 10 pounds, nothing spiritual happened at all. I went to the bank after 14 days and I said, hey, uh, would you guys pre-approve us, pre-certify a loan? In, in Ecuador, I said, would you pre-certify a loan? They said, yes, sir, we will pre-certify a loan. You have great credit. We will give you this $15,000. We will write you a check in 24 hours. If you will come by, sign the paperwork. Check will be ready in 24 hours. We will give you a wonderful rate of 63% interest. <laughs> but in the back of my mind, I had that in my hip pocket. I thought, you know, I, I've always got the bank I can go to and I got on a plane with 26 other, uh, well, I got on a plane on the on 26th day, and I got on a plane with about six other guys uh, from Washington, D.C. We flew to the interior of the jungle. We flew 45 minutes. Every minute in the air is an hour on the ground. It would have taken us 45 hours hiking to get into that village. We flew 45 minutes, landed where there was no landing, where there was no, uh, no running water, no electricity, and we were building a church in the middle of the jungle. And uh, that, church, that group was from Washington, D.C., and some of you guys don't even believe they're Christians in Washington. And I met both of them. <laughs> and uh, on the same trip. <laughs> and when we got there, we built the church, 26, 27, 28, 29th, day 29, that little airplane comes back, and it's going to pick us up and take us back. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I can get to the bank this afternoon, I can sign the paperwork, and tomorrow... I can go pay that guy that money. The pilot landed, and when he landed, when he landed, uh, he looked at me and he looked at uh, this other guy on the trip, on the team that's a little bit bigger than I am. And he says, uh, You two guys, y'all aren't going anywhere. You're too big. I can't take off with all that weight. Y'all gonna have to stay until tomorrow. And I remember sitting there watching that plane take off. <laughs> and I had not told anyone about a piece of land that we were trying to buy. I'm stuck in the middle of the jungle with a guy named Kevin that all we want to talk about is basketball. And I'm watching that airplane take off. Now, I got news for you. That night, I didn't pray because I should pray. I prayed because I had to pray. <laughs> Believe it or not, I met Jesus in a hammock in the middle of the Amazon jungle. And he told me it was going to be all right. 
I couldn't understand it and couldn't explain it or anything else, but I knew everything was going to be okay. Because see, when you take one step out of your comfort zone, you go into the harvest, but you also meet Jesus like you've never met him before. See, it's very unfortunate when Christians only know Jesus as their Savior and not in the power of his resurrection. And see, I, I was sitting there, and what was so incredible was finally the, the breakthrough. And, we, and I, got out, I remember I got out that night with Kevin, never said anything to Kevin all night long. And that night, we stood out on the landing strip in the middle of the jungle, and there's no lights for miles and miles and miles in the middle of the Amazon and right on the equator. And you can see the Southern Cross and the Northern Star and the Milky Way. And the only thing we could do was stand out there for about an hour and sing How Great Thou Art in three different languages. And just knowing that it was going to be okay and I couldn't explain it and couldn't tell anyone else. And the next morning I got up and, and definitely telling you had, had knots in my stomach, but I don't know, just had a certainty. And I woke up that morning and I'm packing up my stuff and I look across the landing strip at 7 a.m. in the morning. And here comes Kevin walking across the landing strip. He's walking 75 yards because he slept in a hammock across the way from me, about 100 yards away. And, and as he is walking up closer and closer to me, he gets right up to me and he says, uh, hey, he hands me a piece of paper and he says, here, take this. He says, that's a check for $15,000. You want to tell me what it's for? Because God would let me sleep all night last night until I gave you this. And I started telling him about the girls' home, and nobody even knew about the girls' home. And he started crying because he's got three grown daughters, and he understands that we can't accept what's unacceptable. It's unacceptable for little girls to be molested. It's unacceptable for children to be mistreated. Just like it's unacceptable for people to die and go to hell without ever hearing about Jesus Christ. And I started crying because God's faithful, and all of a sudden, the two biggest men God ever created are hugging each other in the middle of the grass landing strip, and we're crying like babies, and the chief comes up behind us, and he tells us, says, Pastor, what happened? Did the plane crash? <laughs> we went back and bought that land and started building it, and now it's a, we've doubled the floor space. We've gone through three phases, and right now there's over 40, 40 girls that live in that house. And what's so incredible is when people ask me about the greatest miracle I've ever seen, you know, believe it or not, in the past couple years, we've seen two different instances where people were raised from the dead, completely raised from the dead. One little girl, two days dead with no pulse. Another guy spent the night in the morgue at the hospital. God brought him back from the, lot, from the dead. We've seen people healed from cancer. But the greatest miracle... I've ever seen is going to happen in February because that first little girl that was dropped on our doorstep, she finishes her third year of Bible school. And in February, she gets on a plane and she'll be the first Ecuadorian missionary to ever go to China. And, and what's, so, what's, what's so amazing about this is it's one prayer. God pushed me out. Of my comfort zone. Even if I'm kicking and screaming, Lord, push me out. Make me part of the answer, not part of the problem. See, the reason today, I know that we're here to do missions, and we're going to get, in just a few minutes, we're going to conclude this thing, but I got news for you. God sent me here more than anything else, is because there are Christians in this church today, and you've been a believer, maybe you've been a believer six months, six years, 60 years, and you could teach a Sunday school class on theology and doctrine, those are great things, but you've never known Jesus in the power of his resurrection. You're living your life, What realistically what you're doing is you're living your life in a black and white. Any of you guys ever have a black and white TV? I, I, I do. And y'all ever have your black and white TV sitting on top of your other TV? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and y'all still got your TV sitting on top of your TV. <laughs> you remember when you had to dust your TV? <laughs> it was furniture. Um, anyway, <laughs> I can get off on a tangent there, you know. What's crazy is there's Christians that are living 
in a black and white UHF world with rabbit ears. You know, Jesus intends for us to live in HD surround sound every day of our life. Full color plasma, 3D experience. And know him and the power of his resurrection. And he intends for us to live in the harvest. He intends for us to live close to him. And he intends for us to see miracles on a daily basis. And the only way for that to take place, my friend, is to pray that Jesus Christ, that you would pray to the Lord of the harvest, that he would push you out of your comfort zone and make you part of the answer and not part of the problem. Because, friend, he, you can either obey or you can be comfortable, but you cannot do both. And it comes down to decision. Will you pray that? To know Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection. Would you stand up on your feet? You know, there's two groups of people here today. And there are multiple groups. You may be an unbeliever here. My prayer is that you know Jesus Christ, that he's got a plan for your life. He wants to save you and forgive all of your past. And he wants to give you the hope for tomorrow. The greatest day in my life is the day I met Jesus. Amen. July 11th, 1992. Greatest day of my life. But today I'm really talking to two groups of people. First group of people, as I'm speaking, your heart's beating out of your chest. You're saying, I'm ready to pray, and I'm ready to fly. <laughs> I just want, I want this to happen. I'm ready for this to take place. I want to do it, and I want to know Jesus like I've never known him. I want to see this. I want to know it. I want to, I want to experience it. I want to stop having the same trials and tribulations that I've always had, and I want to move to a different level with Jesus. See, that only comes outside of your comfort zone. See, Jesus never called us to be comfortable. He called us to obedience. But the second group of people, and this is not to be misconstrued, not to be misquoted, and not to be misinterpreted, but you're religious. And the thing is, you have your comfort zone. You've always done it this way. This is the way you've always lived your Christian life. And you're scared to death to pray the prayer because you don't know what's going to happen on the other side. You don't know exactly what's going to take place. And it is going to make you uncomfortable. But it's going to make you know Jesus. It's going to make you obedient. And it's going to make you see miracles. Because of your obedience. Now, how many, how many of you guys have kids? Raise your hand if you have kids. How many of you guys have ever learned from your kids? Like you can't give a cat a bath. That's never a good idea. Doesn't matter how dirty it gets, don't fill up the bathtub and don't try to give the cat a bath. I have four kids and I'm always learning. My two oldest boys, the ones who's here today, he and his older brother. See, that's our, that's our car right there. That's my car. That little white dot. That's where we swim, at the bottom of that river, right on the bottom of that thing. It's about a about 150, 200 foot drop from that bridge to the river. And uh, that is my car. <laughs> That's my speed of light car. I'm driving that car right there. <laughs> you know, what's crazy is uh, we go down and we swim like that, and my boys are not afraid of anything. They don't care a lick about sports. You know, they come back to Alabama and they're going to school for the first time in, in the United States. And first day they walk into school, everybody says, who are you for? What are you talking about? <laughs> they ain't got a clue. They don't know anything about football, sports, nothing like that. But they have no fear whatsoever. 
my kid, they romp and they go up the mountains and they go down in the rivers and they, they've grown up their entire life in the jungle. And, and one day we're down at that river swimming and, and we're watching, I'm watching my boys jump off a rock. They found this rock and they're climbing up nine, 10 foot off the water and they're just jumping in and they're going, bam, bam, one right after the other, the two of them, one climbing up, doing flips, doing dives, doing, you know, cannon bombs and everything else and just going on and on and on. And, and my little boy, Aiden, he's two and a half, he's a year and a half ago. He's two and a half years old and he's standing at the corner of the river, and he's watching his brothers like that, just watching them go up and drop down, watching them go, bam, bam, and he's just, he's getting anxious, man. He's just sitting there in ankle-deep water, and he's, he's looking like that, and he goes, he turns around, he looks at me, he says, Papa, I go. He got on little floaties. That's what he had on those little blue floaties. I said, all right, buddy, let's go, and I climbed up, and I pulled him up on top of that rock, and I set him up, and there was a little bitty, you know, three foot by three foot square there, and, 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 and he's sitting there, and, and I said, okay, buddy, go, you go. And he does this. He goes. <laughs> and he does that about five or six times. And, and, and finally, finally, about the fifth time, he, he just stops and he grits his teeth. And he's got his little, he's got his little floats on. He, he gets all the way up to the edge. He curls his toes over it as far as he can. He squats down. He looks up at me and he grits his teeth. And he says, Papa, throw me. that's what I want to pray for you today see this side is convention and comfort and you know what's over here and it scares you to death to pray that prayer but you know what's over here and you know that's not what you want And you know there's a greater harvest and greater intimacy and greater miracles on the other side of this prayer. Jesus, throw me. Make me part of the answer, not part of the problem. Would you raise your hands toward heaven with me this morning? Close your eyes and Stop worrying about the person beside you or in front of you or behind you. Stop looking around and just focus on Jesus. It doesn't really matter who else prays this prayer today. What matters is that each one of us make a decision to stop pursuing comfort and we make a decision to obey Jesus. And all I want you to do today is I want you to pray a very, very simple prayer with me. You're going to have to open up your mouth and you're going to have to pray it yourself because nobody can do it. Your mom, you can't do it. Your grandma can't do it. Husband or your wife can't do it and your kids can't do it for you. But with an open heart and expecting mind I want you to pray with me this morning and just say Jesus throw me I don't want to be a part of the problem I want to be a part of the answer and I make a decision today to be obedient And I give up my right to comfort because I want to be in the harvest. I want to know you more. And I want to see miracles. I want to know you and the power of your resurrection every day of my life. And to that I'm committed. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I'm going to ask you for a favor. I'm going to ask the ushers to come to bring the the faith promises. And what I want you to do before you sit down, we're going to hand out a faith promise card to each family. If you're here by yourself, take one. Maybe you're here with your mom and dad and you're 30 years old. Take one yourself. And I want each person to take a faith promise card and these Ushers are going to pass through real quick. 
And what I want to ask you to do is I want to ask you to take the next step. And this is very, very simple, okay? Because we're almost finished. How many of you guys, how many of you guys will give me five more minutes? Raise your hand if you give me five. Okay, 10, 15, 20. All right, we got 45 minutes. We're good. <laughs> we're going to be finished in five minutes, guys. What I want you to do is I want you to take out a pen right now, and I want you to write your name. Write your name on this pledge card. This is not, nobody, no one from this church is going to call you. This is not going to roll. They're not going to publish it out in the foyer. But I want you to take a step, and I want you to sit down, and I want you to find a pen, and I want you to write on this card. And what I want you to ask yourself today is I want you to ask yourself, and I want you to ask Jesus, Jesus, what do you want me to do? It's very simple. It's not overly complicated. Make sure everyone, if you don't have one, make sure you, you keep your hand up. Until, if you don't have one, just raise your hand. We want to make sure there's two more people up here in the front section we're, we're lacking. We may have to share. You know what? If, you, if, you're, if you're beside someone, they got one, you guys can team up. It's no problem at all. It doesn't have to be individual. All right. Now, this is what I want you to do, okay? If you're here in family right now, what is a faith promise? All you're doing is you're saying, you know what? God spoke to my heart to give this much, and if God provides it, I'm going to give it. He said, okay, Jesus, push me out. Okay, Jesus, push me out. Now, we're going to watch a video we got the second video ready. And what I want you to do is we're going to take three minutes and watch a video. And when this video concludes, we're going to come back up and these same ushers are going to come up. And I'm going to ask you at that time, we're going to start playing a little bit of background music. And we're going to bring those faith promises forward. And while this video, it's a spoken word video, a friend of mine made this, didn't even know I was, I didn't even know he was doing it. He was recording me in the middle of the jungle giving a team devotion to a group of men that were helping us build a church in the jungle village. It's a spoken word video, so don't get lost. You listen, and you fill out your card. And at the conclusion of this, we're going to start playing. We're going to pray, and you're going to bring these forward, and we're going to conclude together. It's locked up. This is what I want to ask you. I don't, I don't want to ask you what can you do. I really want to ask you a question. Just what did God tell you to do? Nothing else. Because one thing I've found out in life is when God tells us to do something, he helps us complete that. When God told us to go start planting churches, our goal was to plant two churches in 20 years. And 17 years into it, this year, we're going to plant our 60th church. And I remember when we moved there, there were 150 believers in a, in a province half the size of the state of Alabama. 150 Christians because of 75 years of missionary work. They told us it was a missionary graveyard that we would never see fruit. And I told my wife 15 years ago, if we can see 150 believers in 20 years, we'll be successful. And this year, we baptized our 7,000th seven, Believer in water. Now, when we talk about the Great Commission, you can go ahead. When we talk about the Great Commission, we have three options, friends. And I know, you know, I, I wish that there was a simpler way to put it. But when we talk about the Great Commission, go into all the world. We have three options. These are your three options. We can go. We can give. Or we can disobey. Nino, you know, we're going to take in these faith promises this morning and the ushers are going to get ready. But, you know, each generation has a defining moment. I mean, I, you guys remember where you were when the towers fell? I mean, that, 
pretty defining. I, I, was on, I was home itinerating, driving from Haleyville, Alabama, back to Aniana. And, and I had stayed an extra night with my wife. We had no kids, and we're driving down that road, and it should have taken us two hours. It seemed like it was 14 hours to get from Haleyville to Aniana because it was just no one was on the road. And we were listening to the, everything going on on the, on the radio, and it was just surreal. It was like everything was in small, slow motion, and it was this moment that defined us. And I remember when I was a kid, before that, I remember as a kid that I was in the school lunchroom and we watched the Challenger explode. And I remember the teacher walking up and, and just kind of everyone, all of us were just sitting there, just what just happened? And the teacher walking in and shutting off the, the thing and sending us all back to our class. And, and some of you guys remember when we landed on the moon. And my granddad worked at Redstone Arsenal. And friend, he had a plaque because he was, that was the proudest moment in that man's life. World War II veteran, but the proudest moment was when we did it. We did it, we did it, we made the sacrifice and we sweated and we did what they said could not be done. It was a defining moment. Some of you guys remember where you were when Kennedy was shot. Some of you may remember where you were when Lincoln was shot. (laughs) How about we make a defining moment? How about as a group of believers that we just say today, you know what? We're going to obey Jesus and we're going to finish this thing. We're going to remember where we were when we put the last missionary on the last boat to go to the last people group that had never heard about Jesus. What a day! What a day! What a day! I remember where I was when that happened. Let's be that generation. Stand up on your feet. Ushers, come forward. We got ushers in front of each one of the sections. If you had to write it out on, your, on a piece of paper, don't worry. The church will tally it. I told you they're not going to call you. It's between you and God. Well, the reason we need these faith promises is for this church to continue to set a missions budget and be able to monthly support missionaries all over the world. You look around, see these flags. All over the world, this church is supporting some of the greatest missionary endeavors around the world. From right here in this church. Jesus, we love you and we thank you. God, we pray today that what we do is pleasing to you. We pray today, God, that what we do is not bringing attention to us, but it's bringing attention to you. What our prayer today is that you would throw us. <laughs> God, into the harvest. Help us to go, help us to give, help us to never disobey. Our highest desire is to please you and be obedient to you. In Jesus' mighty name. Friends, would you come? Just bring your faith promise. Step out from where you are. Come up to the usher, and they'll receive your promises.